0: We uh, we pray for other churches in the area on a regular basis, and we're we're lifting up uh, Brentwood Bible Fellowship this morning, as they're going to be having a special service today. They're ordaining um, their pastor, Student Ministries, Corwin Wong, which is a great thing. It is uh, excellent to see the body of Christ building up new elders and pastors that the church might be led by faithful people who are, un, are in compliance with the Word and who understand what God wants for His church. And so we rejoice in that. If you're a friend of Corwin's, go ahead and hit him up on Facebook and tell him that you've been praying for him, that you're thankful for the work that God is doing in his life. And, and it's good to see new people ordained, especially in light of the fact that some of our older ministers are passing away. This last week we learned of the, the death of Billy Graham. Um, who was 99 years old, went to be with the Lord. Uh, one of the things that always struck me about Billy in, in, in his ministry being so unique was the fact that he managed to stay controversy-free, as far as morality is concerned, for his whole tenure as a pastor, almost 80 years ministering the gospel of the Lord. And there was never a serious threat <clears throat> to his, his reputation as a man of holiness. He really loved the Lord and put the Lord first. And I've always looked up to him for the fact that, that he cared about making sure that he was above reproach so that people would not slander the name of Christ for a mistake that he was making in his life. And yet he was still a man of humility and was willing to admit his faults and his, his failings and, and, and ask for prayer. And uh, I also appreciate how important prayer was to his evangelistic ministries. The fact that um, <clears throat> I once met a, <clears throat> a person at a Christian concert, And we were talking about how the Billy Graham crusade was coming through the area. And he says, yeah, our church has been praying as a church for the last three months because we're on the prayer team for that crusade. And I learned something I hadn't known, that when Billy Graham would come through an area, he would contact churches ahead of time and ask for them to commit Certain amounts of hours of prayer to the crusade that was going on, and then they would sign up to be resource churches so that people who would come forward and give their lives to Christ, at those crusades would be channeled into those churches for long term care and ministry because Billy didn't want his evangelism to be somebody just praying a prayer and then forgetting about Jesus for the rest of their life. So, um, you know, it's, it's sad to see the, uh, the world without such a great evangelist, but it is also good to know that uh, he has earned his reward. He is with the Lord. In heaven, and he has faithfully served, and we're very, very grateful to know that um, that his ministry has impacted literally hundreds of thousands of people, and will continue to impact the world through through their ongoing testimony. So we've got our Bibles open to Luke chapter twenty-three. If you've uh, You might have noticed we've got families in here. There are little ones with us, and that's perfectly all right. So don't be too embarrassed if you've got a baby making noise. I'm assuming my three-year-old will be rivaling any of your children for attention today, this morning. But we, we appreciate family worshiping together. That's something that we care about. As much as we support Children's Church, we love that we've got people who are volunteering to do that. We're also always welcoming of kids being in with their parents because we want them to see right away their parents' love for the Lord, and their commitment to worship Him. And so it is worth it for us to have to fight through a little distraction every once in a while to know that these little ones are being able to see the example of godliness in their parents and in you, other church members, who are here to praise and honor our King. So um, we're going to give an extra measure of grace for those families that are are here today with their little ones, and we're very, very grateful to have them and to worship with them. Well, we're going to be spending our time in chapter 23 today. Uh, If you haven't turned there yet, you can, but way back in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of what he would be up against later in his ministry. He gave them a foreshadowing of what is now developing as we have made our way all the way to Luke chapter 23. And so back in Luke 9, verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He also went on to say in verse 44 of the same chapter, in the same section of discourse, said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So those two verses reveal the completeness of the condemnation Jesus would experience, he would be subject to the judgments of the religious leaders of Israel, his own people. The scribes, the, the, the elders, the chief priests of Israel would be the very ones that would bring accusation against him in the final days of his life. But he would also be subject to the judgment of men. And that was a phrase that basically pointed to the fact that Jesus would not only be condemned by his own people, but the secular courts would also render verdicts against him. In the last passage that we studied together a week ago, we reflected on Jesus' trial to the religious courts, those elders of Israel. And today we're going to transition to the secular trials that Jesus has to endure before He shows His love for us by giving His life on the cross. The chief priests are functioning as the prosecuting attorneys in this case. They are confident that they have two confessions that will lead to Jesus' indictment. First of all, Jesus didn't deny that he is the Christ. Remember we talked last week about how that that title Christ is the same as Messiah. It literally means the one who is anointed. And it points to Jesus' role as king over Israel and beyond that over all things. And so Jesus did not deny that he was the Christ. And the elders are going to use that against him in this courtroom that we're going to see today. Jesus, secondly, didn't deny that he is the Son of God. Essentially, this is a claim to deity, is confessing that he is divine before them. He has been worshipped by people. He did not stop them from worshipping him. He is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And he has a special authority from God that enables him to do the kind of ministry he's been doing. Now, in the minds of the prosecution, that's as good as a confession. And they're hoping to convince the Roman Courts that a man who thinks this way about himself is a threat to the empire and needs to be eliminated. And so we are in Luke chapter 23 today. And we are going to begin reading, starting in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought, before, brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And so a historical figure enters the storyline at this point. A man who finds himself in a place of great responsibility. Pontius Pilate served as the governor of Judea from 26 AD to 36 AD. The ancient historian Philo described Pilate as inflexible, stubborn, and cruel, which in many ways was par for the course for a secular leader in those days. Though there is evidence that Pilate was probably more fair than many of the Roman rulers that we encounter in the New Testament uh, scripture. As the governor of Judea, he delegated responsibilities. Um, His delegated responsibilities were to handle the financial affairs of the state, to supervise the enforcement of Rome's laws, and to also command the Roman troops that enforced those laws. That was basically what Pilate was in charge of there in Judea. And Jerusalem, of course, was a part of that region of Judea. How exactly are empires traditionally built in human history. They are seized by power, by force, by war. This means that the Roman Empire was constantly struggling to govern the people who did not desire to be governed by them. As they expanded their territories by the sword and shield, They would win an area, a region, which would now become theirs, and they would be blessed and benefited by the resources of that nation they have conquered. But the people who lived there would then be unhappy to be ruled by this foreign government that was over them now. Their culture would have to change to adapt to Rome's rule. They would have to give more tribute and tax because of the fact that they were conquered. And so it was a constant struggle and strife. There was always tension under the Roman rulers to keep the peace, and to keep these conquered people from rising up again and trying to push off the yoke of the Roman rulers. Though Pilate's normal home was roughly 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem in a town called Caesarea Maritima, during the Jewish festivals, such as this festival we've been studying about, Passover, that is occurring in in Jerusalem, he would, by necessity, stay in the city of David because he wanted to make sure he was there in case a conflict arose. These festivals were an annual time of nationalistic pride and reflection, and that caused the Roman officials to rightly pay close attention to the people at this time. They did not want the fervor and this this national pride to stir the people up into some kind of a rebellion or uprising. And when this large assembly of, of Jewish religious leaders sought to bring Jesus before this Roman governor on an early Friday morning, uh, they were careful. They knew that their midrash, their, uh, their law, had made it uh, illegal for them to go into the Roman consulate and then partake in Jewish worship in the same time frame. So they didn't want to go into where, where Pilate was. They sent a messenger in asking and requesting counsel. And then Pilate obliges by coming out into the courtyards where they were allowed to go to hear their case. According to verse 2, the chief priests levied three different accusations against Jesus. First of all, they claimed that he was misleading the nation of Israel. Now that word misleading there is is loaded with meaning. It, It infers that Jesus is another one in this long line of recent insurgents who had begun to rile up the people of Israel had began to to preach against the oppression of Rome and the heavy taxes that were upon them and had been trying to gain support so they might build a militia, an army, to rise up against Rome. So when he says that Jesus is misleading the nation of Israel here, they were claiming that he was trying to incite rebellion. Second claim that they make against Jesus is this. They... Uh, they believe, or they don't really believe it, but they claim that Jesus is forbidding people to pay taxes and tribute to Caesar. Now we know because we've read through the Gospel of Luke together that that's just categorically a lie. In fact, Jesus had instructed his disciples to do the very opposite thing. A Pharisee some chapters ago had already tried to catch Jesus in a catch-22 scenario, He was trying to make him look either bad to the people who didn't want to pay taxes or bad to the Roman government so they might accuse him of being a rebel rouser. And in Luke 20, 25, they asked him, should your followers pay taxes or not? And Jesus replied by saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus was not primarily concerned about lessening the financial burden on the Jews for their taxes they had to pay for Rome. He says, listen, if you're under Rome and they're your government and they're demanding taxes, then be a good citizen and pay them. Um, And yet here we have the elders and the chief priests claiming that he was saying the opposite. But don't forget, Jesus even had a tax collector amongst his disciples. He was a friend of the very people that many of the Jews rejected because they were the ones who had to come into the towns and the the areas where the Jews lived and collect the taxes from them. And yet Jesus showed mercy and kindness to these very men who were doing a service to the nation of Rome by collecting these taxes. So Jesus was not against uh, the taxation of the people. And yet this is one of the charges that is on his docket. Thirdly, they claim that Jesus calls himself the God-sent king of the Jews. This final charge cast Jesus as a threat to the sovereign authority of the empire and, by extension, the authority of Pontius Pilate himself as a governor of the Roman Empire. Jesus was indeed the king of the Jews, but Pilate didn't understand that. And then again, uh, neither did many of the Jews understand that Jesus was their, their king, the promised anointed one that God would send. But there was no real indication that Jesus was planning to use that position, that title, to try to stir up a rebellion to take down the government of Rome. Whether or not his position of Messiah, anointed king, was cause for alarm and action by the Roman government was up to Pontius Pilate to determine. He had to decide for himself whether that, that title of Messiah was enough for him to either imprison Jesus or put him to death. If Jesus was guilty of the crimes the chief priests accused him of, Pilate surely figured that he would have a fiery opponent to deal with here, a a, a leader of rebellions, a man who can stir up men. And yet standing before him was a man who represented the very opposite in Pilate's eyes. There was nothing in the manner of Jesus that seemed to match the claims that the priests and the scribes were levying against him. He didn't come in shouting obscenities against Rome. He didn't come in with stirring speeches that might round up the people that were there to see this trial. Instead, he stood quietly, humbly, silently in the presence of this Roman ruler. Sensing that something's not adding up, Pilate cuts to the heart of the matter. He asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers using the same exact formula that he used with the chief priests when they asked him the same question earlier in their private councils. He said, You have said so. Now, I want to caution you we shouldn't assume here that Pilate renders his whole judgment about whether Jesus is dangerous or not based on that forward answer. Luke has abbreviated the count somewhat, um, somewhat, he has left out some details that some of the other um, gospels have included. If you want some uh, more information then maybe during this week in your personal time in the Word of God, you might read in uh, John chapter 19 to see more of what John records. He has a great deal more information. He speaks about how Jesus argues with, uh, with Pilate that he's not of this world, and that while he is a king in some regards, his kingdom is not an earthly realm, but a heavenly kingship. He talks about how if he were to do battle in this world, he could call down... Uh, legions of angels, and they would do battle for him, but that is not his intention. But we're not going to look at that this morning. As we look at Matthew and Mark, we can see, though, uh, that they added some details that might be worth mentioning this morning. Mark 15, verses 3 through 5. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate understands the seriousness of his verdict. Jesus' life hangs in Pilate's hands. And yet as these chief priests and scribes throw accusation after accusation against Jesus and accuse him of terrible things, Pilate can't believe that this man Jesus would simply stand there and not defend his life. Why is he receiving these accusations without saying anything in defense of himself? Matthew 27:13 through 14 confirms. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So there's much debate and back and forth between the scribes and the chief priests and Pilate himself as he's trying to get down to the brass tacks here. Is this man guilty of something that is punishable by death? It's almost as if Pilate could see that Jesus was being falsely accused and was trying to give him every chance to defend himself, but shockingly, Jesus was refusing to do so. In verse 4, Pilate gives his initial assessment. He says, I find no guilt in this man. I doubt that Pilate would ever render a more accurate judgment in his life. There was absolutely no guilt in Jesus. Not only was Jesus innocent of the charges that were being brought before him in that council, but Jesus had also lived in such a way that his entire life had fulfilled the complete law of Moses. He lived his entire being without committing a single sin. And I want us all to stop and consider that for just a moment. Just how incredibly impressive that is. Because if you've been in Christian churches before, you've heard the claim that Jesus is sinless. You've heard it maybe so often that you don't really stop to think about that anymore. And that amazing, impressive fact just goes by without really settling into your mind and into your heart. If you really set yourself to the task, if you are determined to put all your energy and commitment into going one single day, without in any way offending the God who created you. The God who you were made to honor and to worship. Do you think you could do it? One day, 24 hours. Now remember, to sin is not just to break the legal laws of America. You could probably go a whole day and not break the law. Although if I drove my car, I doubt I could pull it off. <clears throat> if I had to drive anywhere that day, I'd probably break some kind of a law. Uh, but it's more than just the laws of the land that lead to sin, right? Right? There are sins of commission where you do something that is against the written law, but there's also sins of omission. Could you go a single day fulfilling the commands that God has given to you to love one another and to care for your neighbor and to forgive and to even love your enemy? Could you keep all of those commands for a 24-hour stretch of time? There is a heart of wickedness behind our sin. Sin is not just the things that others can see in us, but sin is often the hidden thing in our heart, in our mind. The feeling of pride that we have that we have no business having. The feeling of jealousy we have or envy towards another person's possessions or blessings. Could you go a whole day without thinking ill of someone else? Could you go a whole day without thinking you deserved better than you really deserve? Without seeing the, the good needs of the people around you and not meeting those needs for whatever reason. Jesus did it. Jesus didn't just do it for 24 hours. He did it for every waking second of his life. Every moment he walked this sin-infested planet where temptation broiled all around him, Jesus was faithful to God. He did it even as a small child, tiny in stature and contending with immaturity and limited experience, he still was able to walk through the world without ever having <laughs> sinned. In his book, Who is Jesus? Greg Gilbert puts it like this. That's what's so astounding about the fact that Jesus was sinless. He did everything right. He said everything right. He thought everything right. He did it all. All the time for the right reasons and out of a heart motivated perfectly by love for God and a desire for His glory. Astounding. The New Testament that we study today is stacked with testimonies of people proclaiming that Jesus did, in fact, live out this sinlessness that He claimed. Peter, who is one of His dearest friends, 1 Peter 2, verse 22, said, he meaning Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. John, another one of his closest disciples in 1 John 3:5 says, "You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin." In the Corinthian letter, Paul says that that he made him who knew no sin so that he uh, to be sin so that him who um, so that in him we might have the righteousness it might be I just washed that whole verse up, just <laughs> You can read it. It's right on the screen. It's right on the screen. You get it. He knew no sin. The Apostle Paul proclaims it. This man had never experienced it. And that kind of no in the Greek language is a no that indicates he never never knew it by experience. He never did it himself. He knew of sin. He, He was aware of sin. He had witnessed sin, but he himself had never committed it. And then the writer of the Hebrews letter, such a great resource, resource for us and in Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus has endured every aspect, every type of temptation. It's not like he skated through and just got lucky. That the, that the opportunity wasn't there. He saw it all. He could have done it all and he did, no, he did none of it. He was absolutely pure. And in Hebrews 7, 26, it says, For he was indeed, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The scripture is absolutely clear on this. In a culture that will celebrate the most trivial of accomplishments. Jesus stands as one who has done the impossible. Some of you spent some time last night watching the the wrap-up of the Olympics and the closing ceremonies. And and before you burn me down to the ground, I like the Olympics. The Olympics are great. Uh, I think the Olympics... Uh, bring the world together we get to have a common stage in which we can interact with one another and and where we can have a sense of uh, excitement as we see how our nation competes against other nations the Olympics are a lot of fun but they don't matter in an eternal sense the Olympics don't matter they are a set of games that are played with no real eternal consequence we have rewarded through incredible fanfare and expensive pageantry, men and women who did such great things as sliding on snow very quickly, or smacking a, bla- a black puck through a net. That's what we have rewarded. Okay? That's what we have been celebrating for weeks now. We have rewarded people who can skate and dance at the same time. That's the people that we are putting up as, and the word is thrown around all week long heroes and role models. What does our society put value on, friends? What do we celebrate? Does it ever strike us as odd that we are holding up as heroes and inspirations, men and women who are doing essentially trivial things? Now, I know they've worked very hard, and I'm I'm sure they're proud of their accomplishments, but when we think about what they have, and I haven't even mentioned curling yet. What is curling? I still don't get it. I still don't get, all the hipsters love curling now. I don't even know what, I watch it, I'm still baffled. Okay? Gold medal and scooting along on the ice with a jar. What? Friends, Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. He was absolutely pure. This is essential doctrine to us. We must believe this or we have no salvation. If the Jesus you worship was better than everybody else but still had his faults, then you don't have salvation right now. And I urge you to examine the truth of the gospel because Jesus' perfection was essential to your redemption. If if Jesus goes to the cross and owes God anything, then his death on the cross will pay for what he owed to God and nothing more. But the fact that your perfect Savior walked through this life defeating sin at every step, at every turn, and then went up a hill and gave his life and bled meant that he was giving his very essence so that sinners like you and me might have our debt paid in full by someone better than us. His perfection is utterly unique and at the same time, absolutely crucial to the redemption he brings to fallen man. And so when, Pil- when Pilate says, I find no fault in this man, he doesn't know how right he is. He doesn't know just how truthful that statement has become. Jesus is free of guilt, but his convictions, Pilate's convictions, he sees that Jesus is free from guilt, don't carry on into righteous actions. Because though he knows he should not condemn this man, he is afraid. Pilate, in his heart of hearts, is worried that by doing the right thing, he's going to anger a whole lot of people who want to do the wrong thing. And so he begins to get the feeling that judging this man rightly is not the most practical thing for him to do at this point. Truth is about to take a back seat to expediency in the story of Jesus' trial. These chief priests were urgent. The scripture tells us they intensified their claims against Jesus. They insisted that he was a guilty man, though they offered very little in the way of actual evidence. Their arguments mention that Jesus had stirred up the people from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. Now, they did that to show that this is not some small-town rubble-rouser, that his influence is widespread. They were hoping to cast him as a major threat to not just Jerusalem, but to the whole region over which Pilate was governor. But in mentioning these things, there was an unexpected result of the argument. Pilate grabs onto that. He finds himself in a difficult situation. He doesn't want to condemn this man, but at the same time he realizes that if he doesn't, If he does what is right, then he's going to have a whole nation of priests angry at him. And so to avoid any kind of an uprising, he says, well, if this man is a Galilean, then really what we need to do is we need to send him to go talk to Herod. You see, Pilate was the governor of Judea, but there was a man who was particularly in charge of the region of Galilee which Luke covered in the first nine chapters of his gospel as the first place that Jesus did the bulk of his ministry. So Pilate defers his judgment to Herod. He's trying not to make the decision that he does not want to have to make. And so we, we, we resume our reading in Luke chapter 23. We're now going to read verse 8 through 12. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. You see the contrast between Jesus' silence and his accusers' non-stop accusing? Verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been in enmity with each other. Just which Herod are we talking about here? I know there are several mentioned in the New Testament, so just to clarify, this is not the Herod who some 30 years earlier had tried to have the little baby boys in Bethlehem put to death in an attempt to kill this Messiah that he had heard about from the wise men. It wasn't that Herod. That was Herod's father. Herod Antipas, the Herod we're dealing with today, was also referred to sometimes as Herod the Tetrarch. He had inherited one-fourth of his father's um, region of rule, and he was in charge of Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, Antipas feuded with John the Baptist earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Eventually he would be responsible for John the Baptist's execution. There is one other uh, Herod that you'll read about later on in the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke. And that's Herod Agrippa I. He um, appears in chapters 25 to 26, where Paul has this divinely um, given opportunity to preach the gospel even to those who are in charge of Judea. So this Herod that we're talking about today is Herod Antipas. Now sometime before... Um, Well, before we get there, if you've watched a movie about the passion of Jesus Christ, you've probably seen Herod depicted as this worldly party animal who thinks of Jesus as a party trick and is really frivolous in his approach to judging Jesus. And that is not entirely an accurate historical description of this man. Looking back at Matthew 14, and particularly Mark 6, we can see some evidence that Herod had some personal concerns about Jesus. There was a motivation For him to see this man and to judge for himself whether he was the person that popular opinion had called him to be. Was this truly a prophet? Was this truly a man with miraculous power? You see, sometime before, Antipas had divorced his wife. And that wasn't uncommon, but he did something mm, even taboo amongst the Romans. He went and married his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias, ironically. I have a friend whose name is Chris, and he married a Christie, and that's a confusing household. So Herodias married uh, married Herod the king, and there was some controversy about this. And John the Baptist was bold enough to preach publicly against this unlawful wedding. He called it immoral, and he said and urged Herod to repent of it and to get right. Now Herodias, his new wife, was not happy to hear that there was a man preaching against her new union. And so she came to her husband Herod and asked him to put John the Baptist to death. But Herod found himself at that point in much the same position that Pilate finds himself in here in chapter 23. John the Baptist was at the height of his ministry and influence, and people believed and declared that he was a true prophet of God. Now, if Herod were to have put John the Baptist to death at that point in time, then he risked causing an uprising or a riot of his own. So he deferred. He did not put him to death. Herodias did not forget, though, and sometimes later um, she manipulated her husband. She sent her young daughter in to dance in such a way that uh, during a party of the kings, that everyone was impressed, and the king in his pride promised to give her anything she wanted, up to half of the kingdom. And she went and conferred to mom, and mom said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod, at that point, in order to save face in front of the other rulers that he was dining with that day, called for the arrest and the execution of John the Baptist. Matthew 14, 1 through 2, gives us some really interesting insight into how he felt about pulling the trigger on that execution. You see... Within months of the preaching ministry of Jesus, um, beginning and gathering steam in this area that Herod ruled over, he began to grow in popularity. and People began to report of Jesus' miracles. Herod listened closely to this. The news that Jesus was performing miracles made him very nervous because he himself was a superstitious man. And in fact, he began to believe that perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist whom he had put to death in a resurrected form. Look at Matthew 14, verses 1 through 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his uh, servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So how does Herod feel about Jesus? He's nervous about this man. He's fearful about this man. He's second-guessing his decision to have John the Baptist beheaded, and he believes that perhaps this is a man who's going to bring uh, divine judgment and and, uh, condemnation upon himself. Now Herod, in his fears, has an opportunity. This man, who could possibly be a threat to him, has been captured and has been brought into the Roman courts, and now he gets to render a verdict over him. More than that, he gets to see if there really is any truth, to the popular opinion that this man has divine power. And so he is excited to see these miracles, not just for entertainment's sake, he's excited to see if this is a man he really needs to be worried about, or whether the claims were false, or whether he's just a, 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 a pop culture icon that people have embellished and lied about his power. And so he's grateful to see that, he, that Jesus is in custody. Verse 9 tells us that Herod questions Jesus at length, But Jesus simply stood there in silence, choosing not to defend himself. You're sensing a pattern here. He knew what he needed to accomplish, and he wasn't going to accomplish it by arguing for his freedom. Herod no doubt felt some relief that the actual Jesus before him did not seem supernaturally dangerous at all. He wasn't fighting or planning any obvious revenge on him, as far as Herod could tell. Uh, And so Jesus, being silent before his accuser, does not threaten Herod any longer. He chooses not to give a miraculous sign that he is the Son of God, and he, and, and he does this because he knows Herod has no intentions of following him. and doesn't have any intentions of believing him or actually hearing his arguments, even if he produced credible evidence of his divinity. For Jesus to waste his breath defending his honor would be like casting pearls before a swine in this moment, and it would be counterproductive to what he hopes to accomplish. The Father in heaven is the only judge that really matters to Jesus right now. God the Father knows his innocence. And so the chief priests and scribes accuse Jesus of much during this time of Inquisition before Herod. While Herod's guards begin to latch on to this man's silence, they begin to mistreat him. They begin to belittle him and berate him. They mockingly put a robe of purple, a royal robe, upon his shoulders, and then Herod decides to send him back to Pilate. I think this might be some kind of inside joke from ruler to ruler, saying, here's this king you sent me. In other words, what, what, what Herod is saying is, this guy's not a king. He's not a real threat. Just do with him whatever you want to do with him. Can you see now why verse 12 tells us that Herod, Antipas, and Pilate became friends that day? Herod is now relieved that the man he thought was a potential threat to him, walking around the countryside, is no threat at all. And he's also relieved to know that Pilate's going to do something about it. So he sends it back to Pilate. And then from that point on, Pilate and and Herod, who used to be contentious towards one another, we don't know why, but from that point on, they were allies, they were friends. It was actually an act of respect for Pilate to defer that judgment to Herod, and so perhaps Herod was also impressed that Pilate treated him with respect in that moment. But while one of Pilate's relationships is improving, the dilemma that Pilate hoped to avoid would remain unresolved. Here is the man, back in his own courts, that he does not want to condemn, and yet there is an angry mob insisting that he put him to death. <clears throat> now Pilate is described as having a similar uneasy feeling about this man from Galilee. He had, perhaps, a sinking feeling that there was some reality to these claims, that Jesus was not just an insurgent, but perhaps even sent of God. So he had tried to defer. He had tried to wash his hands from the responsibility. He had tried to put Jesus off so that he wouldn't be responsible for the man's death. But you just can't put Jesus off, can you? (coughs) Friends, we cannot just push Jesus to the side. And unfortunately, we live in a world where many who have heard the name of Jesus preached, many people who have been confronted with this eternal truth that they are not just here from some cosmic accident or chance, but they are actually put here for a reason by a God who governs all that is made and is natural. That fact that Jesus was in fact sent to save and to pay the penalty for sins which we have all committed, that is a truth that many in this world would rather not have to render a judgment on whether it is true or false. The vast majority of the people in this world probably push that off for a later time. They are deferring Jesus just as Pilate tried to defer Jesus by sending him off to Herod. And there are many reasons why people do that, don't they? Some say, you know what, I'm a young person. My life is before me. I want to experience a little bit of freedom before I come under the yoke of any kind of a lord or ruler. So there's plenty of time for me to decide what I want to do with Jesus. I'm going to put that off until later. And yet we all know that there is no guarantee that tomorrow is promised to us. There are so many other paths to examine that some people say, well, maybe Jesus is true, but how can I really know until I've examined every other possible path that's out there? And so let me take some time to think about it. And then they usually don't examine the other paths either. They just let Jesus kind of hang out to the side. And they don't really make a decision about Him one way or the other. But they just say, yeah, one day I'll think about it. One day I'll get serious and I'll decide for myself what is true about not only this life, but eternity. Other people take their approach that, you know what, surely God has bigger things to deal with than me. My life is insignificant. God doesn't care whether I sin or not. So maybe I'll deal with Jesus at some point or time, but there's really no rush because I'm just one of seven billion people in the world and God doesn't really care what I'm doing or not doing. You see, there are several interesting reasons that people use to try to defer Jesus away from themselves, to try to not have to make a decision about who Jesus is. But eventually it all boils down to this simple truth. The human heart of sin has an agenda. And that agenda is contrasted to the rule of Jesus. When the truth of Jesus is presented to a free and rebellious heart like our heart's, And God tells us, listen, there is one who is greater than you, there is one with more power than you, and you have offended him. You owe a great debt to God, and you can only pay that debt off either by your own condemnation to hell, or you can have that debt paid to you by the one that I have sent, but you must give your life to him. You must surrender to his his authority. When that question is posed to us, we tend to not want to have to answer it. We want to continue in this ignorant, path of believing that we can just do what we want to do and God's not really going to mind all that much. Even a professing Christian, somebody who believes in Jesus, will often in a sense defer the defer the authority of Jesus by not listening to his commands. Those who would call Jesus their lord and king will often neglect to follow his rule and will act as if they are their own Lord and King, even though they profess Him as the one who has authority over them. And in doing so, they try to play a game as Pilate has tried to play here with God. But friends, you may push Him away, but Jesus will be there again, and again, and again. There's a passage of Scripture that I often share to people who are going through difficult times. It's from Psalm 139. Listen to these words. You've heard them before. I'm sure you've, you've heard this passage in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, where David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, O Lord." you cannot escape from God. You cannot push Him away. And if you trust the Lord and you're walking with Him, what a comfort that is to the soul to know that no matter how hard the enemy tries to get you to stumble and fall and disobey the Lord, you can't can't go somewhere and hide from Him. He'll find you and He'll comfort you and He'll bring you back to Him. But that same section of verses should also be a stark warning to those who want to just avoid Jesus for as long as possible and never make a decision about whether they want to follow Him or not follow Him, and then maybe they can live free their whole life, and maybe at the very end they can make a decision on Jesus. We cannot afford to deceive ourselves in that way. There is nowhere where you can go where Jesus is not standing at the door and knocking, and insisting that He is Lord, and that it is only by trusting in Him through faith that you have any chance of salvation in this life. Listen to the words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 2. He says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Next week we're going to continue on reading in Luke chapter 23 and we're going to see that Pilate, when faced with that question, with that verdict, must answer for himself, does he confess that that Jesus is innocent or does he deny it and allow him to be put to death? We're going to see that he makes the poor confession. Every one of us in this room, every human being, every human being who walks this earth, will have to decide one way or another how they see Jesus. This decision means that we must either confess that He is Lord or deny that He is truly the Son of God. If you confess that indeed He is Lord, you confess your sin before Him and receive His grace and mercy, then you belong to Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, God is calling you into a right relationship of obedience to Him. He wants to bless you, but it's not like this kind of fairy tale God who just flies into your life and gets you out of trouble, but then lets you go on and live however you want to live. He knows what is best for you and he's saying, Child, trust me and come walk in the ways that I have determined for you and experience true blessing. Experience true peace. You can choose to confess that Jesus really is Lord or you can do as so many do and deny that Jesus is who he says he is. I want you to be very clear on this if you choose to not make a decision about Jesus, you are choosing to deny Him. There is no middle ground when it comes to where you stand with Christ. Because the Scripture tells us that every human being has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means when you are born, you're not born an innocent little dove who then can be corrupted or not corrupted by the world. You're born with sin in your heart. And that means that the default position for a human being who is born into this world of sin, is that you are born an enemy of the God who created all things. You are a rebel to Him, and you're in great danger. Until you come before the grace of Jesus Christ, and the blood that He shed on that cross begins to apply to you in a redemptive way, you cannot call yourself a friend to God. But it is our hope and prayer at First Family Church and in every gospel-preaching church that anyone who comes to the realization of their sin, anyone to whom the Holy Spirit makes clear the gravity of their offense to God and and understands that truthfully, we cannot just pretend like everything's going to be okay. We must receive the truth of God, how He has given it to us. It is our hope and prayer that everyone who sees that truth will truly say, this indeed is the Son of God. This is the Christ This is the Messiah that Jesus has sent, that they will put their faith and trust in Him and they will experience a transformation that can only be won by His perfect blood. When Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and we're going to be reading about this as we approach the Easter holiday, He did it to suffer for sinners like you and like me. He did it so that the penalty of sin that we have earned and we need to pay for to a God of justice and truth would be paid in full by His account. That His death would cover what we owe to God and that His resurrection would give us hope that we too can walk in a newness of life. But that only comes when Jesus is truly Lord, when we can confess that He is the King who alone has the power to save us and the will to do so. We pray that that would be the transformational truth that saves your life. Do not defer defer Jesus Christ any longer. And if you are a believer who is walking with the Lord, but you haven't been walking with Him, you call Him King, but yet you, for all intents and purposes, are ruling your own little kingdom, then let today be a reminder that He will be there wherever you go. If you drift away, this Lord is going to confront you. And if you are truly a son or daughter of the King, Scripture tells us He will chastise. He will bring you back to Him and through harsh means if necessary. He will help you to fill the sting of your sins so that you will no longer walk in a way that disgraces the name that you now bear. But it is possible that you made a profession to the Lord but didn't really actually start following Him, that you've been walking this time and, and you didn't really have a heart for the Lord God and if that is the case, then let today be the day of salvation for you. We can't put this off forever. We know this is a decision that needs to be thought over carefully and prayed through, but do not put off for tomorrow what needs to happen today. Today is the day of salvation.